Hi, this is Vanessa Van Alstein, and this is my podcast, Art, I Swear. I'm here today to tell you about contemporary art, art history, modernism, and all those little pesky things that make visual art so confusing for non-art people. Now, you're probably wondering who this schmuck is that's sitting here in front of a microphone telling you about visual art. Well, I actually have an MFA from the University of Houston in studio art with an emphasis in an emerging and interdisciplinary media. What that means on an academic level is I've reached the highest degree possible in studio art. Now, you're probably going, no, PhD. Well, there's no PhDs in studio art because they feel like the lack of science and the discipline makes it a less valid academic, a less valid like academic pursuit. I, I think that's funny because if you do any kind of art, you have a weird understanding of how like compounds work and things dry and like, you know, there's people that work in plastics, but whatever. There's no PhD. There isn't Dr. Artie McArtson. Now there are PhDs in art history. There's some design PhDs you can obtain. Uh, and there are a couple PhDs in the world and uh, in the United States that are unaccredited, which means it's a title, but you've kind of spent money on something that's not going to help you get a teaching job or, you know, just has the collegiate boards. Colleges are really complicated. Let's just stop there. This is getting really boring. Anyways, all you need to know, I I almost dueled mastered in art history. I... I'm not just pulling the stuff out of my bootay. I'm going to include show notes with every podcast on my webpage that is artiswear.com. If you want to look at web links or get a little more in depth on some of the subject matter, feel free. Also like and share for your friends. Today's podcast topic was requested by my friend Tabby. And it's one that you cover pretty early on in art school and get bashed into your head over and over and over again. So it's a topic I'd kind of like to get out of the way early so that I don't have to talk about it as much. Um, And it's Impressionism. This probably doesn't sound that excited to you because, you know, you've seen the Monet on your grandma's wall. And gee, what a nice photograph of gardens and flowers and trees. Or maybe it's a pretty Renoir portrait of a lady on the wall who's just oh so pastel and pretty. Pretty is a word I would use to describe a lot of Impressionism because it's become so commonplace and accepted in society. I would say as accepted as like Renaissance painting or any other art form that's not very challenging. Because what's revolutionary about the Impressionists is really very easily overlooked. And I think you're going to have looked at them already and you know that It's not as tight of a painting technique as, for example, the Renaissance artists. Uh, What the Renaissance people are doing is they're layering a lot of paint, thin down oil paint, and applying a varnish between the layers so that it has this like real rich depth that makes things 
look real and it hides the brush strokes. That's not present. The hand of the artist doesn't really exist in that work because they didn't want it to. And part of this is because art back then serves a function. Number one, it's it's you're usually being funded by religious institutions or you're pleasing a patron or you're providing portraiture because there's no way to capture what people look like outside of drawings or paintings. And just like with contemporary photography, if you're going to show a photograph of yourself to your relatives, oh gosh, let's send it through Photoshop. I had a zit on my nose that day. I really don't want anyone to see that. And, you know, I, I have a couple of freckles on my arm. Can we just, can we, can we leave that out? And maybe, maybe make my, my something look perkier. I'm I'm in my mid thirties. I need, I need some lifting here. You know, it's stuff's not as, uh, appealing as it used to be and that's that is art for the most part until the 19th century they're looking at people that aren't really people they're looking at landscapes that aren't real landscapes you go out you sketch you get a good idea you have a couple of things in front of you and then you create an amalgamation that is to say and this is a painting we'll talk about later if you look at titian's venus of urbino and a nude reclining on a settee uh, in a very like classic Roman-looking room. There's a maid there. There's a dog there. It, it's coded Renaissance stuff to in- invite the eye and make her seem like she's open to the experience of the male gaze. But at the same time, she's not a real woman. She's the best parts of various models. And I'm trying to keep this PG-13 in this podcast because... So much of art is nude, and so much of what we have to talk about here is the role of the women and the men that are in these paintings. And it's, I'm not going to lie, it's mostly women. Women are the most common subject, especially when we're talking about nudes in museums, even to this day. And you can make your own aspersions. You're also going to probably uh, snub your nose and call me a little bit of a feminist, but I've honestly been called much worse. So when we're looking at Titian's Frankenstein monster of a painting, it's, it's still very pleasing and it is meant to be appealing, to tempt the male viewer, but not so much that it violates religious tenets. There's a story behind the painting that justifies the woman being like that. And you're supposed to learn some kind of moral lesson from it. Things start to kind of change towards the end of the, you know, 1800s, like late 17, early, like, you know, like 1830 and 40, more pushing into the 1850s. There is a group of French salon painters and the salon is like a school slash exhibition space. You're, you've made it if you've gotten in there back then. It's still kind of around. Um, It's not the same school. Things change. So uh, these painters are looking at what's in the past. And like most young people, they see the past. They see the way that things are starting to stagnate. And as the children of history, they begin to rebel. And the first ones that start to rebel, and I know you're probably going, what does this have to do with Impressionism? Art 
frames how we look at things and how we see things. And I'm trying to set up why this is rebellious. So around the 1840s, 50s, we have a movement called the Realists. One of the bigger ones is uh, Gustave Cobert. Another one is uh, Delacroix. And uh, I'm... I am originally from West Texas. My pronunciation of foreign languages and sometimes even English is a little tinted by the fact that when I was a child, I sounded like an extra from King of the Hill. So please forgive me if what I have just said makes you cringe a little bit. Try my best. All right. So these realists, they are looking at reality and they're trying to bring it in. Sounds a little obvious, But you have to realize that we're so used to these hybrid model people being presented as real. Seeing people in their actual state of real is revolutionary. And then you combine that with what they're also doing called plain air painting. And this is not plain like Greek yogurt. It's got an E and an I in the middle and there's no E at the PL. E-I-N-I-E-N. I'm dyslexic. Anyways, plain air painting is you go outside, you sit your butt down, you paint an interesting part of the landscape as it exists right then, and then you come back inside, and then you'll go out and do it again a couple days later when the light's different and try to capture that difference. And so previously landscapes, they're just, like I said, you're, you're sketching things, you're coming back, you're recreating it. Photography doesn't exist. So this makes sense. But that's another thing that's going to start to change that's going to influence the Impressionists. These realists who are going out and just capturing people the way they see them, suddenly they're seeing photographs. When you get into the 1850s and the 1860s, you're probably very aware of like Victorian battlefield photography with the United States Civil War. And I'm specifying that because the United States is not the only country to have a civil war. And... I don't know where in the world you are. So what photography does is it gives us this impression of how things actually are. So when we've been looking at things through the filter of artists for so long, suddenly painting starts to come into question. Like, why are you painting? Yeah, you have to stand there for 15 minutes and try not to wiggle. And and that's why people back then didn't smile in photographs. But at the end of the day, this is a true-to-life representation, good or bad. And an argument begins that is still actually kind of going on about whether or not photography is a legitimate art. But what's also happening is people like the Impressionists, they're seeing photographs and they're seeing how light has come through a lens and it has been captured on this immortal piece of paper. This moment in time is always trapped there. And what does that what does that mean for painting? What What is it about light and this little blurry quality and this place where it's not quite developed right? Is this reality? Is this more real than real? And how can that translate to painting? There's also an interesting aside a lot of people aren't real aware of, and this is a word I'm really going to struggle with. Um, there was an Italian group, mostly in like Tuscany and Florence, northern Italy, a little bit in Naples. At this time, Italy's trying to become one unified country instead of a bunch of little states that kind of bicker and don't really work together. And this group is called the Amacchioli. It's going to be in my show notes. Really hard word to say. And if it sounds a lot like a macchiato to you, like you're now going, oh man, 
I need to get me some Starbucks. I would love to, mm, latte. It's because it's the same root word. Um, it means, it basically translates to stain. And that's describing how these Italian painters are painting. A lot of them are watercolorists, which is why you don't see a lot of them. Watercolor does not archive well, especially when you're not a popular movement in your lifetime. Basically, these Macchioli, coffee guys, they're loose sketches and they're just putting enough paint on because they're kind of doing it in the plain air style, but still being influenced by Italian classicism. They're making these like basic shapes for people. And it's not like abstract like you're going to think like Picasso or modernism or minimalism but it's not the level of detail that you see in like renaissance painting or a Titian or an Eines it's this bare moment of reality captured quickly with paint these guys they predate the impressionists some people argue they are Impressionists. Some people argue that they're like the grandfathers of Impressionism. They're worth noting because they did have an exhibition in France that the men that would later become the Impressionists were exposed to. So when you combine that with realism, you're starting to build the tenets of what is Impressionism. The last influence I'm going to talk to you about to set the stage for what creates the Impressionists is on the complete other, other side of the world. I, I, if I could put some dramatic do-do-do-do-do kind of like transition music in here. I want you to spin the globe and I want you to find Japan. Now that probably seems crazy. This is a little tiny island on the other side of the world. You've watched a whole bunch of anime and you probably think you know what's going on. Maybe in the anime they have discussed the Mamiji Restoration, but this is what happens in the mid-1850s. Japan had chosen to withdraw from the world, to isolate their islands, and have no contact with Westerners. And this is the age of the samurai. This is when what we think of as feudal Japan, like the Edo period, etc., kind of goes on, and they reach the heights of what is their isolated civilization. This is me telling you this is a biased white person exposed to Western art history. I'm sure some people would argue with me. The Mamiji Restoration opens up their ports. Now, they didn't have a lot of say in this. They're pushed by imperial Europe. They're pushed by, you know, let's just, let's not pretend that England and France and the United States weren't kind of bullies. So when these ports open up, Japanese artifacts become very, very trendy. And they're flooding into places like France and England because it's amazing it's not quite chinese art it's not southeast asian art never mind that these are still considered too colonial imperial western culture uh, frontiers that need to be explored so we're taking these block prints very specifically but of course other works that are coming out drawings as in ink sketches etc etc and we're looking at them and this is crazy stuff. How little they paint. How much atmosphere is allowed to exist in the positive space, which is what you 
the positive space is the physical space of the painting versus the negative space where nothing's going on. So the person is positive, the background is negative. And, you know, you've seen a lot of Asians design, think about like a cherry blossom that's like kind of asymmetrically on the page with the flowers falling down. And when you look at people in Japanese block prints, sometimes they're cut off on the edge of the page. They're not in the very center A lot of Western art history up until this point has followed Pythagorean's golden ratio. I used to tell drawing students when I taught college that if you want to watch a really good documentary or not documentary but cartoon on how to understand the Pythagorean ratio there's a Disney film called Donald Duck and Mathemagic Land. I I think it's on YouTube. It actually kind of explains what's going on with that ratio but it's It's also sometimes called a Weston's rule of thirds if you're into photography. It's basically how you can structure something so that it's strong on the page. It's not the only way to orient something. It's not always right. And what they're seeing with these Japanese artists that have not been exposed to that concept is... It's crazy. Who who does that? Who just cuts a figure off on the edge of the page and then they look at photography? When you're starting to create snapshots, and snapshots is a word that was created only for photography, people get cut off. If you think about your peripheral vision, you don't see all of a wall. You don't see all of the people in the crowd. They're cut off. This is real. This is realer than real, and it's something that artists did not see in Western art until they're exposed to Asian artists, and until they're exposed to photography. Now on to Impressionism. If you haven't gathered how real things are, how light plays, the environment of the painting, these are all really key, crucial concepts to Impressionism. It's this loose brushstroke style that you know, you you kind of go in there and you, you give the bare impression of an object. They did not originally call themselves Impressionists, by the way. Uh, they were just kind of this group of salon rejects that didn't really have a name. And they did a combined exhibition. One of the paintings in the exhibition was called Impressionist Sunrise. It was by Claude Monet. This painting actually disappeared for a very long period of time. It was stolen. Um, there's a huge black market for art. Um, art seen as something that can be traded for illegal items that kind of still retains its value. Anyways, Impressionist Sunrise, I mean, it's a sunrise painting. That's not a real big leap. There's a lot of like weird oranges mixed in with the blues, making the highlights of the clouds, not these subtle, ethereal kind of moist looking things that are up in the sky like you see in older painting. They're visceral. The highlights are wild. It looks like the sky is on fire. It's this mixing, swirling, almost chaotic ball. And for people that have never seen that before, who haven't seen an artist trying to express the impression of looking at this, this is wild. This is like playing punk rock for your grandma in 1935. She's, they don't know what to do with it. And the press is not favorable to the Impressionists. They basically accuse them of slinging paint. They say that children could do a better job. 
one man actually has a mule that kicks paintings that he tries to pass off as an impressionist. And he actually does for a little bit, but it's because people didn't really understand the dialogue these guys are having at the time that they first start creating at the time they first start creating viewers of artwork have this idea in their head of the romantic painter the guy and i don't mean the romantic period this is a period of art i mean the romantic notion of the artist as the male sitting in a garage or a basement or a rundown studio in paris he's starving but he's painting because he's so in love with his art and he's going to die obscure. And then as soon as he dies, oh my gosh, his work has value. He is validated as a person. That's a, that's a, that's a sweet romantic notion. It does sometimes kind of happen. Usually those guys were unpleasant or, very very out there or like van gogh kind of mentally ill and died young your impressionists this this isn't the case as much most of them live to see notoriety and fame they are within their lifetime acknowledged as having value and most of the the ones that die in debt and completely anonymous like i said they usually die young and they're, they've made some decisions that are just not the best. Or, you know, I want to say Manet probably did not see the fame that he eventually is going to have as the grandfather or the forefather of Impressionism. But he still saw some of it. He still wasn't swilling down turpentine because he was so hungry his whole life. I, I don't know that he did that early on. But, you know, it's an example. Really, a, a lot of our idea of what a poor artist lived like comes from Van Gogh and I would like to stress again that man was extremely mentally ill and he's also not an impressionist you might not know this but he's a post-impressionist his style is not entirely in congress with what we're talking about and he comes a little bit after them I just mentioned the name Manet some of you who don't know about impressionism are probably going don't you mean Monet no Monet Manet Pretty much the same spelling, just one has an A, one has an O. We're talking about Mr. A-Guy, Manet. And I'm talking about him now because this is, is a little bit in order. He comes kind of on the heels of realism. His early work, because of how he's trained, has a lot of that influence. He has a lot of the like classic French salon-style influence. But he starts to step away from that, and with great controversy, I'm going to use an example of a painting called Olympia. Olympia is a direct reference to the Titian that I have previously mentioned called Venus of Urbino. And by the way, if we're spelling Titian, it looks a lot like Titan. Check the show notes. Titian has this, once again, a nude reclining on a settee. She's an amalgamation of various models there's a maid and a dog in the painting. Dogs have a coded meaning in Renaissance work that continues into his lifetime. It's it's a symbolism of male fertility usually and uh, women that are understood to be of looser morals. They They have dogs in paintings. It's kind of like a woman that's sitting at a piano bench or with an instrument 
and another one's around that's inviting you to play or if she's writing a love letter probably hinting at that she's a lady of ill repute and what's amazing about Manet's painting Olympia which once again is a nude female reclined she has a maid behind her offering her flowers and a cat and that is just different enough for a reason first off she is receiving a token of male attention the male attention is not hinted at in this painting she's getting flowers from her client or boyfriend second off according to some web pages i've read and i try to use well reputated pages olympia is a common name used by french prostitutes at the time and it's understood that this model also worked as a courtesan and i say this model because she was a specific woman and he paints her realistically and this is hard for them to look at because number one some of the men in the room have probably slept with her and number two he doesn't hide the fact that she is a flawed human being if you look at Olympia, her torso is kind of truncated. She's not very boobalicious. Her legs are a little stumpy. She's she's a flawed, ordinary woman. She's, I mean, talk about awkward. I mean, do you want to walk into an art gallery and see the woman you pay for sex on display? Most people wouldn't. Kind of like your ex sending nudes of your yeah i don't know another painting that follows along the line and explains why manet's paintings were so uncomfortable is a painting of a woman standing at a bar it has the loose brushwork style that is common to the impressionists at this point her features are clearly defined but still you can see his brush stroke you can see his hand in the work and I keep saying hand because that is a component that is very important for understanding artwork as you move into the 20th century, especially painting. This is a low-class woman in her plain black and white dress. And in the reflection, you can see there's a mirror behind her uh, with the bottles in front. Common thing even in modern bars. And you can see Manet in the reflection. And what's interesting about this is... He's not a painter, he is a client at the bar. And the undertones that exist here is a lot of women, especially ones that work in professions where they come in contact with men, like waitresses, like barmaids, are understood to also work as prostitutes. Ideally in the society, a woman sits in a house and waits for her husband she takes care of the children she takes care of the house and she doesn't have to go out and work a woman that works is low class and at this point wages are so poor yeah she's probably selling her body and while she isn't somebody that's recognizable like olympia this is somebody that's an average person that you might hire or you might buy a drink from. She's not that amalgamation of pretty model parts. She has flaws. And being presented with that, that makes society extremely uncomfortable. And this continues over into other famous impressionists. Like I'm going to mention Pierre-Auguste Renoir at this point. Now he 
originally started out as a porcelain painter, and I like to think of him as the pretty impressionist. He mostly focuses on people. Other people do focus on landscape more. And his work is still very brushstroke heavy. You can still see all these fine little strokes. It's not like Pizarro, who is just a cornucopia of tiny brush strokes to the point you're like, dude, how long did this take? Renoir, though, everything's very pastel. Everything's very nice. And unlike the other Impressionists, he later goes to Northern Italy, tying him back into the Immacchioli uh, that we were talking about previously, the Stain guys. And when he comes back from Italy, he has this new restored sense of classicism. This is not him early on in the Impressionist movement. This is him after he spent some years in it. He also produces more portraits than a lot of the other Impressionists. He's a fairly jovial guy. hes I've heard in the past that he was kind of a flirt. What's sad about Renoir, and this happens to Manet too, but not as extreme, is he ends up with extremely debil- debil- debilitating rheumatoid arthritis. It's so bad he spends his final years in a wheelchair unable to really do much of anything. Later in life, he did actually strap paintbrushes to his hands and learn how to paint. If you're wondering now how his paintings retain a lot of their integrity is how... Okay, when you're teaching a younger person, you sometimes hire them as an artist assistant. And when it comes to painters, this is a lot of how they learn how to paint. It's still done today. And a great way to learn, you know, is to have some experienced artist standing behind you yelling at you about how you're not mixing that orange right or what's wrong with you this gradient is not okay it's seen as a little weird now like I feel like we get offended we have this idea that art has to be this isolated entity that's created out of nowhere And that's Bubkiss, because as you can see, it comes from history. You are influenced by everything around you. And if you're a guy that's trying to put out a lot of paintings and you're trying to teach these younger artists a craft, why wouldn't you have them work on your work? I'm just saying it's still valid if somebody else is involved. Think about it like a movie. They're a director. The director hires a sound guy. The director hires actors. The director hires writers. That's okay. Now that I'm done defending Renoir, let's let's talk about probably the guy that you really know, Monet. This is the Impressionist that most people think about when they talk about Impressionism, and mostly a landscape painter. There's some really famous portraits by Monet of his wife. Um, he really loved her. And she's very sweet and pretty in these, unlike Manet, where it's these women of questionable background. You can tell that this is a sweet picture of his wife out in a field with an umbrella over her head and the sunlight gently shining down through the umbrella. So what makes Monet stand out from the other guys is he really kind of embraces what comes out of that plain air painting I was talking about. Remember, not plain like yogurt, plain like a French word. And he's capturing the environment of light. And I'm going to say he actually does this to an obsessive point that would put most diagnosed OCD people to shame. I mean, I don't know that he had OCD. Nobody can go back in history and really determine that. He is methodical. I've also heard stories about kind of a cranky guy, 
definitely a control freak. Supposedly what he would do is he would load his kids down with uh, his art supplies and he'd go out into this very nice garden that he's inherited. And he would make them hold supplies and his easel and just hang out while he paints. Like they had to just sit there and put up with it. And we're not talking about small, small children, but you know, get a teenager to spend the day with you holding your art supplies. That, that, wow. And the loss of his wife was also very hard on him. Like he suffered from some very bad depression later in life. I do believe he remarried. I might, what, is interesting about him, like I said, is the methodical way he repeats things. He's going out every day at 3 p.m. and capturing how the light changes through the season. He's doing this very true to life with very thick, heavy brush strokes. Now, we can look at him in comparison to like Degas, who's the guy you know that painted uh, ballerinas. Paintings are very different in real life. And when you look at a Degas in real life, you can see why people make so many comments about how thin his paint is. You can really see the pencil sketches underneath, which is saying a lot because the way most of the other impressionists use oil, it's such a thick mess. That's not even happening. Monet, really thick painter. And it starts to change as he gets older. He very much sticks to impressionism. He very much sees the rewards of his hard work. He lives to be pretty old. But what's interesting is later in life, he develops cataracts. And cataracts tint your vision to like an orange, yellow, red color scheme. So he has what's very early, like the modern equivalent of cataracts. I think I I think I heard from a Sawbones podcast that we've actually been able to treat cataracts for a lot longer than you'd think. But what happens with Monet is that once he can see fairly normally again he realizes how changed his vision was and he gets mad and he burns paintings. And this is something he never had any problem doing. Remember I said he was kind of a crank. Well, he'll kick stuff in, he'll throw it in the fire, he'll rip the canvas up and he kind of has a big bonfire after his cataracts are done, which is interesting because his eyes don't stay well. Later in life, he begins to obsessively paint the Rouen Cathedral. He had an apartment across the street from it. And you can really see how his vision has deteriorated at this point. It's even looser than when he was a young man. The colors are, once again, pretty harsh. Uh, There is this sense of atmosphere and that things kind of start to get lost in the background, which is something, once again, that's crazy. That was not done in art previously. Now, for the last Impressionist I'm really going to get into is a lady. It's Mary Cassatt. And... Once again, you're probably getting your cockles all up in arms about feminist, but she's actually really interesting, and it's partly because she's a woman. Now, if the talent wasn't there, no one would talk about her anymore. But I'm sure you've noticed, with the exception of painting subjects, some of which are prostitutes, we're not talking about women at all. The women aren't allowed in the salon up until Mary becomes really involved in painting. To this day, women actually aren't that well acknowledged as artists. The bulk of art school graduates are female, but the bulk of who's shown in galleries are male. And that's that disparity is really, really odd. There was actually a fairly famous painter in 2015 who stated that women have not made serious contributions to painting ever. And that's 
that's very reflected during the Victorian era. And I realize France at this period, Victorian, uh, Victoria was not their queen, but you know, let's, let's, let's just roll with it. One of the really interesting things about Mary Cassatt also is she is an American. She's from Pennsylvania. She does not start out in the French countryside with the influences that the Impressionists do. Part of how she manages to become accepted in the art world is she comes from a rich merchant class people in Pennsylvania. She can afford an art education, whereas a lot of people, especially women at the time, would not be afforded such a luxury. And no, her family is never very supportive of her choice to be an artist, but she obsessively and doggedly goes after this. She refuses to hear the word no, and she has the money to back it up. And the person that introduces her into the Impressionist school, and that's a school is kind of a movement. It's, it's a group of people who are working in a like-minded way. I don't mean a literal like university anyways. Degas, that's who introduces her to the other Impressionists. He sees her merit and he shows her off and she starts to have a dialogue with these men and becomes a respected peer and even when she can't be in France for a while because they go to war, she goes back to America and tries to recreate her success. But she finds this extremely thwarting. The Just the, the quality of living in America at the time is so repressive. She doesn't do well. And an interesting side note, she actually lost several paintings to the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 that you probably heard about where most of Chicago burned down. Her work is very feminine and it's that probably sounds funny a woman's work is feminine that's not always the case but it's I mean it's feminine and the subject matter is always women but it's not women with the uneasy edge that exists in Manet's work they are women going about their lives in ordinary spaces in socially appropriate spaces raising their children and living their lives. You get an insight into what it's like to be this cloistered and sheltered wealthy female individual that is supposed to needlepoint, do the books, clean the house, and make sure the kids are okay. And that's kind of the interest, but also the tragic part of her work is she doesn't get to pull herself out into the public near as much. Her landscapes are always, for the most part, these socially acceptable garden areas where a woman can exist. She has a little tighter way of painting. I, I would actually compare how she paints a little bit to Edward Hopper. You might know the painting The Nighthawks where there's a bunch of people sitting in a New York diner in the 1930s. His manner of painting is still pretty loose. It's kind of blocky. It looks a lot, and I would say this of Cassatt, you can definitely compare them to the Amacchioli, the coffee stain guys. The work is similar enough. The subject matter is similar enough. And they kind of handle people in this like simplified, stainy, painty, brushstroke laden manner. It's not so thin like the Amacchioli, like Edgar Degas, but it's also not the like thick, heavy, smacked on stuff. And Cassatt, her work is acknowledged as one of the pushing and influential pieces of Impressionism. And if you go outside of the 19th century, there's no female artist you can say that about. She's really kind of the first of her kind. And when we start talking about the end of her life, she actually developed very bad diabetes and went blind and was wheelchair ridden. 
And I, the last 10 years of her life was really kind of heck. She was very, very, very unhappy because, like I said, she had this dogmatic urge to create and she really wasn't very good at taking no for an answer. And so that kind of wraps up the podcast on Impressionism. If you have any ideas for further podcasts, if you want to know more about a certain artist, a certain movement, a theory in art, or you know, the real reason I started this podcast to explain why the heck artists are doing that, go ahead and reach out. I'm available Artiswear on Facebook, Artiswear on Twitter, or you can shoot me an email at artiswear at gmail.com. And of course, Always leave a comment, always like and share. If you have learned something from this podcast, if you feel like you can maybe go to the museum now and have a little bit of a conversation about Impressionism, why not give the gift of knowledge to your friends? Art, I swear, would like to acknowledge the creative contributions of a writer by the name of Renea Mason. She writes paranormal erotic romance. That means while the podcast might be PG-13, her books are definitely not PG-13, unless for some reason you maybe found Fifty Shades of Grey PG-13, in which case maybe we should have a conversation because I think you're a little confused about what PG-13 really means. I'm basically saying don't let your kids read it, but it's a really fun, if you like secret societies, crazy adult fun time, bouncy bouncy, and, you know, just really good writing that would make the Fifty Shades of Grey woman cry. I really suggest checking out Renee Mason. It's And it's R-E-N-E-A. I tend to say Renea because I'm a dumb hick. But and Mason is Mason is spelled like, you know, the secret society Illuminati guys. I would also like to thank Joe Giggs for the intro and outro of this podcast. Joe Giggs is a DJ located in the New York City area. If you're looking for a fine techno beat, I suggest checking him out. He's also available on Spotify, and that's Joe Giggs, like G-I-G-S. I would also like to thank Iridial or the Conant Project for the inspiration for the intro-outro. I did receive their permission to use samples, though Joe created most of the work that I need. But wanted to give a shout out to that, guys. They do recordings of number stations for historical preservation and allow the sampling in a lot of artworks. If you don't know what a number station is, really cool thing to Google. All right. Thank you for listening. And everybody, have a creative day.